Chapters forty three and forty four of When Shadows Die by E. D. E. N. Southworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter forty three. Husband and Wife. It was late in the morning when Abel Force was awakened by a gentle tapping at his chamber door. Who is there? he inquired, as he hastily arose, thrust his feet into slippers, drew on his dressing gown, and opened the door. "'It is I, Papa,' said Wynnette, in a cheerful voice, and with a bright smile, that at once dispelled the squire's fears for his wife, which had been aroused by the summons. "'How is your mother?' he inquired. "'She is better, Papa. She is awake now. Dr. Bolton says that we may see her, but only one at a time. I thought you would like to be the first, so I came to call you. I did not know that you were still asleep. It is late, you see.' "'Yes, it is late, but I was up nearly all night.' "'Thank heaven that your mother is better. "'Come in, Wynnette. "'Hadn't I better leave you to dress, Papa? "'Presently, but I wish to send a line by you to your mother "'before I go to her. "'I will dress while you take it.' "'Wynnette entered the room, closed the door, "'and sat down on the side of the little bed to wait for the line. "'Mr. Forrest went to the small stand and wrote, "'Dearest dear, I have read your paper, "'and I love you as ever, more than ever, if that were possible.' for love is deepened and sanctified by sympathy with all that you have suffered. Send me word by our Wynnette if you feel well enough to see me. I am longing to be with you. He folded the paper and gave it to his daughter, saying, Go in to see your mother, and when you have kissed and embraced her, give her this note and wait until she reads it. Then bring me any message that she may send. Wynnette took the missive, wondering a little why her father should send it, and left the room to deliver it. But Mr. Force had acted with prudent foresight. He feared that, in his wife's nervous and enfeebled condition, the sudden sight of him in her room, while she was yet in doubt about his feelings toward her, might have a disastrous effect upon her health. Therefore he had sent the short, loving message as a preparation for his visit. He dressed himself in a great hurry, and waited for the return of Wynnette. She came while he was drawing on his coat. "'Mama wants you to come at once and see her alone. She has sent out the nurse.' "'How did you find her, Wynnette?' "'Oh, she is better. All right, I should think, except that she is very weak and as white as chalk. She cried when she read your note, Papa. Why did she cry, Papa? What was in your note?' "'She cried from nervousness, my dear. There was nothing in my note to distress her. I expressed the sympathy I felt and asked her if she was able to see me,' replied the squire, truthfully, as far as the words went, yet evasively. "'Oh,' said Wynnette, and she was perfectly satisfied.' "'I am going to see her now,' said the squire, as he passed out of his own little room and went to his wife's chamber. He opened the door and passed in. The window shutters were open, but the white shades were down and the lace curtains drawn, so that the chamber was filled with the soft, dim, white light that showed the low French bed and the fair form upon it. As Mr. Force approached his wife, she put up her hands and covered her face. "'Elfrida,' he said, in low and tender tones, "'Oh, how can I look you in the face?' she murmured. "'How can I kiss you, dear, unless you take away your hands?' he said, gently removing them and pressing his lips to hers. "'Oh, Abel, if I could leave my bed, I should be at your feet. It is on my knees that I should receive your forgiveness,' she moaned. "'My dearest,' he whispered, kissing her again. "'My dearest, I do not offer you forgiveness, for you have done me no wrong.' "'Oh, yes, oh, yes, I had a shameful secret, and I kept it from you, and married you.' My love! No, no, my selfish feeling was not worthy of the name of love, yet what else can I call it? 
Whatever it was, it blinded me to honor and duty, and drew me on to marry you, with that shameful secret in my heart, she moaned. Dear wife, you are very morbid. Your secret was not a shameful one, and it was never kept from me, he answered caressingly. What, Abel, what are you telling me? she inquired, starting up in bed. Lie down again, calm yourself, and keep very quiet, Elfrida. I have much to tell you, and I will tell you all. Confession for confession, my dear. The idea that you should have anything to confess. It is impossible, Abel, she said, as she sank back on her pillow, and lay quietly, as he had told her to do. Yes, Elfrida, confession for confession, for I knew your secret when we were married, but I never let you suspect that I knew it. How, she breathed in wonder. Your father told me when I asked him for your hand. The late Earl had insight enough into character to see that he could trust me, that I could never blame you for the deception he believed had been practiced upon you, that I should consider you as truly an honorable widow, as if the marriage you believed to have been a fraud, had been as legal a bond as it is now proved to have been. What, what are you saying, Abel? I, I cannot comprehend. I am telling you that Saviola married you in good faith, and that your marriage was as lawful as heaven and earth could make it. But lie still, keep quiet, and let me tell my story in my own way. You will then be able to comprehend it better. I will try, she said, settling herself once more. You will remember that when I asked your father for your hand, he said that he must have a talk with you before he could give me an answer. Yes, he told me so when he came to talk with me of your proposal. You remember that you refused me, all on account of that secret, which you would not reveal. I, not knowing why you refused me, but certainly knowing that you returned my love, declined to take no for an answer, and so I continued to be a member of your father's traveling party. Yes. After some weeks I again renewed my proposal for your hand to the earl, your father, begging his intercession with you on my behalf. It was then that he took me into his confidence, and told me of the false marriage, into which, he believed, you had been led while yet a young, motherless girl in the schoolroom, and of the child that had been born of that marriage, and finally of the death of the man who had perpetrated the supposed wrong. It must have been a great shock to you. A shock that was without the least blame to you, my darling wife, so that when I recovered from it I told your father that you were in my eyes a blameless widow, and that I should be the proudest and happiest man alive if I could be blessed with your love and honored with your hand. Oh, Abel, generous soul! He then told me where the difficulty lay, that you imagined yourself so, so, well, so injured by the wrong which had been done you, or which you believed had been done you, that you could never bring yourself either to reveal it to me, or to marry me without having revealed it. No, I could not. I could have died, or lived in misery sooner. So your father told me, but I was a young man, in love, my dearest, and therefore ready with expedience. I said to the earl, I see a way out of all this. He replied, Tell me, for I see none. I answered, You have told me these antecedents, and your most fastidious sense of honor is satisfied. I know the secret, and still pray for the honor of your daughter's hand, as I believe I have already the blessing of her love. Pray, go therefore to your daughter." Ask her if she considers you a man of honor and integrity worthy of her trust. Of course she will earnestly, and with wonder and indignation at such a question, assure you that she does. You will then please tell her of my renewed proposals, and assure her, in turn, that on your honor as a peer, and your faith as a Christian, she may accept my hand without revealing her secret, and without detriment to her conscience. 
The earl remained plunged in thought for a few minutes, and then replied, "'I believe you have found a way out of the labyrinth. I will do as you request upon one condition.' I asked him what it was. He answered, "'That you never tell my daughter that you knew her secret. She is so morbid on that point. I believe she would die if she thought you knew it.' I promised. "'And Elfrida, darling, you know the rest. We married, each having a secret from the other. Yours the secret of your first marriage.' Mine the secret of the forbidden knowledge of that marriage. Did I not say that I should offer confession for confession? Chapter 34. Love Stronger Than Fate Oh, Abel, what did you think of me all that time? I thought you were the loveliest, yet the most morbid woman upon one point on the face of the earth. Often when I looked at you and saw you preoccupied and very sorrowful, I wished that you would be brave enough to tell me your trouble, and so relieve your heart and find rest in my sympathy. "'but you never took courage to speak of it, "'and I was bound by my promise to the late Earl "'never to reveal my knowledge, "'unless you should first trust me with your secret. "'You have done so at last, "'and enabled me to make my confession also. "'And, oh, Abel, you educated my son. "'Our son, I adopted him when I married his mother. "'Oh, Abel, noble heart. "'Hush, dear, I am but an honest and well-meaning man. "'At least I hope I am that much.' As soon as we heard of the earl's death, I sent for the child, whom he had cared for while he lived. The boy was brought over in a Baltimore clipper, and I went to the city to meet him. I found the boy thriving, and I sent him down to Port Tobacco by sea, while I came home by land. I intended that he should be reared in Port Tobacco, where I could go to see him often and watch over his training. It was a stormy season, and I, traveling by the shorter land route, reached home fully a week before the tempest-tossed and battered carrier-pigeon was driven upon our shores, and wrecked with the loss of all on board, except the child alone, who was strangely saved. I should have taken him at once to our own home, but for consideration of you. I gave him in charge of Miss Bayard. In a day or two I knew that you had seen and recognized the boy. Then I noticed that any mention of the wrecked child distressed you, so I did all that I could for the little lad without forcing him upon your notice." My noble Abel, I have never deserved such a heart. No more of that, love. I think now that I have made a clean breast of it. I think I have told you all. Except this, you said that my first marriage was not a fraud, but a legal act. Oh, is that true? And if true, how came you to know it? inquired the lady. Oh, yes, I must explain that. And then, Elfrida, you must neither talk nor listen longer. You are exhausted. But tell me first, how do you know my first marriage was legal? Do you remember the discovery we made the day before you were taken ill? The discovery that the villain who attempted to blackmail you and marry our heiress, under the name of Angus Anglesia, was not that gallant officer at all, but an impostor, taking advantage of the closest possible resemblance to Anglesia, to carry out his own nefarious purposes? Yes, a relative of Anglesia, Burn Stukely. The same. Well, twenty years ago, Anglesia and Stukely, I hate to connect their names, were exact counterparts, as you have heard. Well, the same Stukely was in Paris at the time that Saviola was there, and was taking the name and character of his benefactor. Saviola, deceived by the name and resemblance, mistook him for Anglesia, and asked him to act as his second. Stukely consented, and when Saviola fell, mortally wounded, the dying man entrusted the impostor, with important papers and confidential messages, to be delivered to you at Geneva. Now do you understand? Yes, I see. 
but he took his time in coming to Geneva, did not make his appearance there, indeed, until weeks after Saviola's death, when he came, I suppose, in the course of his own business. Well, my dear Elfrida, it must have been the sight of your beautiful face that tempted him to his subtle villainies, to use the papers and the information he really possessed in the manufacturing of false evidence, to convince you that your true and lawful marriage had been a fraud, in order to get you in his power. Yes, yes, but when and how did you discover that the marriage was really lawful, and that the evidence produced by Stukely was fabricated? By the appearance yesterday of the bona fide Angus Anglesia, who went with you and Saviola to Scotland, saw you married, and for your better security, took an attested copy of your marriage certificate, which I have now in my possession. My brother's friend here, my brother's friend all that we first believed him to be, the vow he made to see me scathless through my mad marriage, kept to the letter, the shadow lifted from my life. Oh, I am so glad, so glad, and so grateful. Thank heaven, oh, thank heaven. Do not excite yourself, Elfrida, you promised to be quiet. Well, I will, I will be quiet, but I am so happy, happier than I have been for twenty-five years. What brought General Anglesia here? He came in search of you, he brought with him some papers that belonged to you, said the squire, and then, while the lady listened with breathless interest, he told her of his accidental meeting with her brother's old friend on the avenue the night before, and of the long interview they had had in the apartments of the general, in which the latter had told of his visit to Naples, his chance encounter with the Prince Saviola, and all that had transpired on the occasion, which was followed a few weeks later by the death of the prince who had left all his devisable estate to his grandnephew, Rolando, only son of Luigi Saviola, and his wife, Elfrida Glennon. And our dear friend took all the trouble to go to Geneva and hunt up the baptismal register of my son, and then to come across the ocean to find me out? And to bring you the copies of your marriage certificate, the register of your son's birth and baptism, and of your great-uncle's will. But my son, Abel, my son, she cried, our son's release is the question of a few hours only. He has been a voluntary prisoner because he has been grossly deceived by Stukely into the belief that he is Stukely's son. The lady gave a cry of horror, and he refused to testify against his supposed father. This morning Grandier, Anglesia, and myself will go to see him together and tell him the truth. He will no longer refuse to testify. We will then go to the commissioner of prisoners and ask him for an early hearing." If there should be any delay, we will go to the President. I think I can promise that he will be released before sunset. Heaven grant it, breathed the lady. And now, Elfrida, I must summon your nurse and leave you to repose. You had better not try to see anyone else today, not even the children. Anglesia will wait until tomorrow for an interview. One more word before you leave me, Abel. What is it? How came I back here in this bed? Where did you find me? I know I was crazed with trouble when I left that statement on the table and started on my journey. I have no distinct memory of that journey until I lost myself in a wild, dark desert place, infested with wild beasts and birds of prey, and then oblivion, until I awoke to find myself in this bed. How did I get back? Who brought me home? You have never been away, dear Elfrida. Your howling wilderness was but a delirious dream. In your distraction you prepared to leave me, no doubt, but you never left the room. You were found by little Elva, dressed as for a journey, but lying in a swoon upon the carpet. You were put to bed and skillfully treated, and you have got better. Is it possible? murmured the lady, passing her hand dreamily over her forehead. It is true. 
And now, dearest, though I would much rather pass the whole day beside your bed, I must call your nurse and let you rest. You must not be disturbed again today, said Abel Force, as he stooped and kissed her. She put out her arms and drew his head down again and returned his kiss, murmuring, Bless you, Abel. Bless you. Bless you. Then she released him, and he went softly to the door and opened it. Mrs. Winder, the sick nurse, was sitting on a chair a few feet off. She arose and met the squire, saying reproachfully, "'You have stayed too long, sir. The doctor expressly said that no one must talk to my patient for more than five minutes, and you have stayed half an hour at least. It is very wrong, sir, indeed, very wrong, and I should not like to be responsible for the consequences.' "'You must pardon me on this occasion, nurse,' said the squire, good-humoredly. "'I hope I have done your patient no harm, and I promise that no one else shall disturb her to-day.' "'No, sir, they shan't. I will see to that,' answered the woman, with the despotism of her class. Mr. Force was too happy to be resentful. He went downstairs to the ladies' parlor, where he found a very large party waiting for him. Odalite, Elva, Wynnette, Mrs. Hedge, Miss Grandier, Miss Bayard, Rosemary, Captain Gideon, and young Sam.' He bowed as he entered the room, where he was promptly met by Wynnette, who at once flew at him and pecked him with the words, "'Papa, you are a perfect outlaw. You were not given permission to stay more than five minutes in Mama's room, and you have stayed about five hours, it seems to me.' "'Oh, tut, tut, tut! What reckless exaggeration! Not half an hour, my dear,' said the squire. "'And we are all just famishing. Here are our friends from the country, too.' They have got furnished apartments on E Street, but they have to come here for their meals, and they are just fainting with hunger. The squire thought they need not have waited for him, but might have gone down to breakfast under the escort of the old skipper, but he was too kind-hearted to say so. She is only teasing you, Mr. Force. She has no respect for the fourth commandment. We have but just arrived, and though we have excellent appetites for our breakfast, we are not suffering from hunger, said Mrs. Hedge. "'I know, Wynnette,' said the chick-packed papa, "'but now we will go downstairs at once. "'Where is Enderby, then?' "'He went out to breakfast with a friend "'who has just arrived from England, "'but I didn't catch his name,' replied the skipper. "'Oh, I know. "'Miss Sibby, will you take my arm?' "'Now, what do I want with your arm, Abel Force? "'Them as has arms and legs of their own,' says I, "'don't need to be toted along on other people's,' says I, "'replied the old lady, trotting on before the party.'" End of chapter 44